Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rust Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guest, Tara Denham, who is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at NYU Langone and a program manager in physical therapy. Joseph Adams, who is a senior physical therapist and clinical instructor of rehabilitation medicine at the NYU School of Medicine, and Dr. Eva Mayovich, who is a senior psychologist and a clinical instructor at the NY School of Medicine. So thank all of you for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. Tara Denham is a leading expert in the field of vestibular therapy and is the founder of the Vestibular Physical Therapy Center at Rusk. As an American Physical Therapy Association certified vestibular clinician, she lectures extensively to a wide range of audiences. Joseph Adams is a board certified clinical specialist in neurologic rehabilitation with advanced training in vestibular rehabilitation. He's a faculty member at Rusk Neurologic Residency Program and also an adjunct professor at Touro College. Dr. Eva Mayovich has done research and made professional presentations on the psychological assessment and treatment of vestibular patients. She is an integral part of the multidisciplinary care team at Rusk, treating patients with vestibular disorders in individual and group therapy settings. Rusk is going to be offering a course on November 3rd and 4th, 2018, on the topic of vestibular evaluation and treatment of the dizzy patient. As participants in that event, please inform our listeners about what will occur on that occasion. Well, we're going to do a two-day course with experts in the field of vestibular therapy from different parts of the country, world-renowned therapists. And we're going to discuss the medical and surgical management of the dizzy patient. We're going to discuss differences in in presentation between like central and, and peripheral disorders. We're also going to discuss, the therapists will discuss their treatment techniques and the evaluation of the patient with vestibular disorders. Eva will be our special guest to talk about the psychological aspects of vestibular disorders. And the real unique part of this course is that on the second day, we're going to have five labs where the therapist can experience and we can demonstrate and go over how to treat these patients with the manual techniques that we use. So there'll be a lab portion that's completely a whole separate day so they can concentrate on actually putting, doing hands-on treatment of the patient with vestibular disorders. So why is the course being offered at this particular time, and what is the target audience? Is it just health professionals or also patients and other interested parties? It's for health professionals, primarily physical therapists and occupational therapists, and it's really to give a basic understanding of the treatment of vestibular disorders. It's an up-and-coming field and has been for several years now. But a lot of different clinics are seeing patients with these disorders and it's a very different type of treatment than traditional physical therapy. 
So this is a good time to try to get some of our fellow colleagues up and running and how to treat the vestibular patient, certainly how to recognize when there is a vestibular disorder and the basics of treating a vestibular patient. Is vestibular dysfunction associated in any way with certain demographic factors such as age, gender, and racial ethnic background? And if so, please explain. Sure. Vestibular disorders can occur to anyone regardless of age, demographic background, or ethnicity. Uh, It's one of those great equalizers in a way where it can affect anyone almost at any time. It's a commonly repeated myth that only older adults can experience dizziness and vertigo. But for example, I may have a patient at night and in the morning who is 15 years old, and then the next patient may be 45 years old, and the next patient may be 90 years old. You know, it can happen to anyone regardless of these characteristics. There are certain patterns that have emerged, though, over time through research where, for example, in BPPV, which we'll talk about later, most likely in this podcast, it can occur more commonly with age. So it gets more and more uh, prevalent with age, so much so that by the time someone turns 90, they have a 50% chance that they've had it at some point in their life. There's other disorders like Meniere's disease, which is a pressure problem in your ear that tends to occur in the fifth decade of life, as well as an acoustic neuroma, which is a benign tumor of your inner ear that can also occur, tends to occur in the fifth decade of life. But besides these exceptions, it can really happen to anyone at any age, uh, regardless of their background. Thank you for that response. Because of comorbidities, polypharmacy is particularly common among older patients. Are there situations where required medications for these other conditions, working either singly or in combination, may contribute to dizziness? And if so, what can you do effectively from the standpoint of the professions you mentioned, physical and occupational therapy, since these individuals are going to continue to have to take some necessary medications? If you look at most medications, dizziness is a side effect of most medications. So, but we truly try to, when our evaluation, determine whether this is the cause of their dizziness or if it's something else. If we think that it might be the cause, then we work with closely with our physicians to see if there's any other way that they can use different medications in order to address this issue. But most of the time, what we see are patients that the medication is causing the dizziness. It may not be helping, and then we work with the physician to try to modulate that medication so we can get the least side effects as possible. And then along with dizziness, it would seem that there's an association with the likelihood of falling, especially among older patients. And I'm sure you know that even in the hospital setting, the falling that occurs among older patients sometimes leads to mortality. So it's pretty serious and everything. So is this something that you try to take into consideration when you talk about dizziness and what can be done to alert patients to prevent them from falling and really hurting themselves and perhaps even killing themselves? Yes, we treat a lot of patients with balance disorders that come along with this vestibular disorder. So we evaluate them for the risk of falling. We evaluate them for the need of an assistive device. We provide handouts that talk about how to modify the home to decrease the risk of falling. So we're very, it's very serious and it's something that we're treating. So as they get better, then, you know, we'll keep evaluating all the time. But in the beginning, we make sure that there's as much safeguarding as possible to eliminate the possibility of falling. So we do a lot of education around that so that they can really try to decrease the risk that's involved with with having a disorder and falling. Please describe any psychological aspects that would be associated with vestibular disorders. 
The literature tells us that between 40 to 64% of all vestibular disorder patients have some sort of significant emotional distress. The most common of that is anxiety, which can range from kind of a generalized anxiety, kind of chronic fear and worry, to a panic disorder with agoraphobia, which is the fear of leaving one's house, fear of open spaces and so forth, which is, uh, of course, very, very disabling. And anxiety is a very problematic symptom for vestibular patients. Actually, two symptoms of anxiety are lightheadedness and dizziness. So dizziness will trigger an anxious response, which in turn ramps up the dizziness. So you get this vicious cycle that occurs. And what other issues besides anxiety play a role in vestibular disorder? Well, certainly emotionally depression can be a part of the picture because one loses a lot of function uh, with severe vertigo. It also has a very uh, significant impact on one's sense of oneself, particularly if it becomes a persisting disorder. In addition, there are some considerable social ramifications because of fear of looking unusual or stumbling or or actually appearing drunk. Some people will avoid social situations. Also, too, vestibular patients tend to be sensitive to things like noise, bright lights, and so forth. So things like talking in a restaurant can become problematic for them so they become socially avoidant. And the other problem that they face is oftentimes because they have a hidden disability and vestibular disorders are generally not well-known in the general population, they're very misunderstood. And actually, there are some cognitive issues, too, that we see with vestibular patients because dizziness really impacts your attention span because you're paying attention to your body and space and, and your physical condition. It's hard to, first of all, pay attention and to concentrate, and that impacts upon your memory and and tasks such as multitasking, sequencing, and so forth. And also, too, this is very physically and mentally fatiguing, so people will complain a lot about brain fog and things like that. So along with occupational therapy and physical therapy, it's pretty obvious that psychologists play quite an important role in treating patients with vestibular disorder. Do you care to elaborate on that any further? Well, we actually have developed uh, stress management programs for patients in a group format, which is a very short-term treatment that enables them to literally have a toolkit to manage their stress. We utilize uh, predominantly cognitive behavioral strategies and actually some meditation strategies to reduce anxiety and to track symptoms, which becomes very important because a lot of times people will have a pattern their symptoms. For example, rainy weather can be problematic for some patients. So once they determine that, then they can plan their schedules accordingly. We train them to pace activities and so forth. Another very unique thing that we can do with Eva on our team is if we're having trouble with a particular patient who's anxious about the therapy, she will come in with us and help give them strategies so that they can get through the exercises. So we collaborate a fair amount to get the most benefit out of each therapy session. Please describe some common central and peripheral disorders and indicate which signs and symptoms are used to identify them. So there's a variety of different uh, common disorders that we see in vestibular rehab. The central disorders, which we call disorders that affect the brain and things other than the inner ear, 
would be things like a concussion can affect the brain. And what happens, for example, in a concussion is that the inner ear, you know, the organ that senses where you are in space, may actually be working fine, but when the signal gets to the brain, the brain has to interpret that signal, kind of like how a computer processes information. So with these central disorders, we call them, they, or such as in a concussion, the brain can be affected and our target is then the brain. So a concussion would be one example, or even a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury can cause people to have dizziness and vertigo. There's other disorders such as uh, different types of strokes can cause dizziness and vertigo, particularly of the different arteries that can be occluded that affect the cerebellum. Different cerebellar disorders can also cause dizziness and vertigo, in addition to, you know, imbalance and other things that need to be addressed, as well as even disorders that you may not even associate with dizziness, like migraines, can cause dizziness and vertigo. And these are all in that category of central disorders. And in the peripheral category, there are things like BPPV, which we'll get into, I believe, in a little bit. And there's acoustic neuromas, which are benign tumors that are on the nerve that feeds the vestibular system. You can have what's known as ototoxicity or taking medications that may kill the hair cells in the inner ear. So there can be peripheral causes, there can be central causes, and our treatments are all different depending upon what the diagnosis is and what area we have to focus on. One manifestation of a disorder just mentioned is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, more commonly referred to as BPPV. How are patients' lives affected by this particular disorder? For example, would they be more prone to experience falling down? Yeah, so this disorder is a disorder in which there are crystals in your inner ear that are um, dislodged in, the, in an area that they're not supposed to be. So anytime you pick your head up, bend your head down, tip your head to one side or another, these crystals move, giving you senses of vertigo. So there's a sense of spinning that you get for a brief period of time. And that definitely can cause you to be at high risk of falling. It's a diagnosis that we can treat very effectively. It really can sometimes take one or two sessions and we can put those crystals back where they belong. But until that happens, people that have BVV are at very high risk of falling. And many times they have to go down on their hands and knees or lie down in order to have this dizziness subside. So it is a very frightening disorder and um, you're at very high risk of falling with this disorder. To what extent do any problems involving vestibular systems affect vision? The vestibular system affects vision and disorders of the vestibular system affect vision, not in the way that one would expect. For example, people with vestibular disorders may be able to read something in print or a page in front of them just fine. But when they move their head and they try to engage in life dynamically, that's when they experience visual instability and some other things. So the vestibular system senses where your head is in space. And when you turn your head, it's supposed to send a signal to your eyes to stabilize and kind of undo that head movement. So in a way, it stabilizes your eye when your head is moving. We call this the vestibulo-ocular reflex. It's just a simple reflex that coordinates your head and your eyes but people with vestibular disorders will have trouble with this. So when they turn their head, their system may not stabilize their eyes very well, and they may have that visual instability. Um, they may say, you know, when I turn my head, I have a hard time looking at something. It may be a delayed vision. They may experience their visual world bouncing as they walk, kind of like a low-budget movie or a bad movie with the camera shaking. Some other types 
of visual instability can occur, but just in a different way than one might expect. Regarding BPPV, the benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, what's involved in testing for that condition? As I said before, that when you tip your head in a particular fashion, we'll have this spinning sensation. So we have to reproduce that. So we'll have someone lie down with their head extended, and then you get a certain response when someone has BPV, a certain ocular response, which is what causes the dizziness. We wait until that goes away, and then we reposition the head in such a fashion that those crystals will move back to where they belong. So it's a matter of just a few head motions, and then you sit up, and hopefully we've got it on the first try. Sometimes you have to do it twice. We don't get all the crystals the first one, but we're very, very successful in treating this disorder. Please describe any evaluation techniques that you use to develop treatment plans for your patients. As Joe mentioned before, there's two main reflexes that the vestibular system controls. One is your vestibular ocular reflex, or the ability to keep your world steady when your head is moving. And also, you have a vestibular spinal reflex, which allows your body to get a sense of where your head is in space and make the right adjustments so that you don't fall. So those two reflexes are very integral in the treatment of patients with this disorder. We look at the vestibular ocular reflex. We look at the vestibular spinal reflex. We find out which area is weaker than the other, and then we build a tailor-made exercise program for that person to address the issues that we find in the evaluation. What's the current status of clinical practice guidelines and the evidence base for the various treatments that you use? And for example, are there any gaps where more studies and more research would be necessary and helpful? Uh, Many people may not realize that there's actually a tremendous amount of research on persons with vestibular disorders and the treatment of them. For example, in 27 and 2018, there's, there were three clinical practice guidelines published in many of the treatments, level 1A research, which is the highest level research. These are, this is the type of research where there's randomized controlled trials, large sample sizes, systematic reviews, and meta-analysis, things like that, all support the use of Vestibular rehab, which is what we do in two main conditions. One is the hypofunction. The other one is BPPV. And these two categories are what we've been talking about primarily during this podcast. So in that way, it can be very effective and it's very rewarding to be treating patients in a way that we know uh, most of them will improve with the right techniques. There are, of course, certain gaps in research, just like any other uh, types of disorders, Specifically in the central disorders that we mentioned earlier, there's less research to support it. For example, in persons with concussion across the board, not just in physical therapy, but in all types of rehabilitation and interventions, both medical and physical therapy, there's a lack of research to find the best ways to get people better the fastest. So there's only a few randomized controlled trials out there to support that. This is not to say that there research to refute it or to go against rehabilitation in these conditions. It's just that we haven't gotten to the point where we have very high-level research to support it. So as people do more research, I'm sure this will grow and support it more. Other disorders that cause dizziness that also need more research are those other central disorders like people with a stroke who have dizziness and vertigo, or migraines certainly are, are hard to pin down, but and there's a lot of research that needs to be done for that, as well as a moderate and severe traumatic brain injury. And are any of these branches of research being done now or possibly on the drawing board at Rusk that would shed additional light on these particular kinds of disorders? 
Not those particular disorders at the moment. We are doing one thing for concussion, but it's not exactly in that area. But we're using a protocol that was developed by John Letty, who talks about using aerobic exercise to help with the concussion population. But his study does a treadmill, and a lot of our patients with severe dizziness can't handle the treadmill. So we're doing a study to see, one, if early intervention of aerobic exercise is helpful for the concussion patient, and two, whether and we're using a bike as opposed to a treadmill to see if that's more tolerable for patients to be able to do the exercises without having the disturbing effect that the treadmill has. We're also doing a study on virtual reality and seeing if, in fact, with people that have visual vertigo, whether virtual reality can help to speed up and treat their vestibular visual vertigo. So we've been using the cardboard scenario for using, you know, virtual reality, and we've had some good success with just starting that. And then Joe has been involved in another study. Uh, Yes. Tara and I were doing a study on that reflex that we talked about, the vestibulo-ocular reflex. You know, there's a lot of ways that people measure the vestibulo-ocular reflex medically and with very expensive equipment. So we were seeing if we can do a clinical test, something that doesn't cost anything, that correlates with all that high-level equipment. We're doing a study on if we can use something clinical and simple to do the same thing as the high-level equipment. And the results are coming out in the next few months. So we're excited to see that. Thank you for that response. Tara Denham, Joseph Adams, and Dr. Eva Majevich. I'll close by thanking all three of you for sharing your insights with our listeners about your activities at NYU that involve the treatment of patients who have experienced a vestibular disorder. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today. I wish you continued success in all your endeavors. And again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.